Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Here we are. Happy 2021, everybody. We're so excited to be here on our second year of Glass Houses of Billy Joel podcast. Uh, let me tell you, 2020 was a whirlwind. Obviously, it was for everybody. Yep. We published our first episode back in February. We had no idea what was going to happen with the podcast, let alone, you know, the planet Earth. But I think the <laughs> we said the last episode, we're going to say it again. We can't believe how great the support and the listenership has been, and we're just floored and humbled by it. Thank you guys so much. For me, coming from a journalist background, one of the things I enjoy about this podcast mm -hmm. is getting some stuff on the record that in our research we haven't found. I'm really happy that we've been able to uncover some more stories, some more behind-the-scenes stuff that I don't think anybody really knew that much about. We certainly didn't. It not only adds you know more dimension to the music that we all love but it really gives a lot of the supporting players their due especially just uncovering so many stories about doug stegmeyer and then mm -hmm. teasing a few out of liberty that didn't even make it into his book and that we're right. going to lobby for him to write a second book because he's clearly got like three more volumes he's in got the so much ready more material to go. <laughs> yeah this first year has been an incredible ride and i can't thank you guys enough for jumping on with us when we started this in february i didn't know where it was going to go i I was just happy to start to document some of these things like Jack was talking about. I've been talking about Billy Joel my whole life. And so it's so nice to have an audio record of my experiences and what I've learned about these records. And as we're digging into this, I'm learning something new every day about Billy Joel. And having been a fan of his for 40 years now, didn't think that was going to happen. But we're just unturning so much that mm -hmm. is such a treat. And it really does add a lot to these songs. And if it seems weird that we're kicking off the year talking about the past, well, that's part of the theme of this episode. We put together something a little different, and it's sort of a way that we're looking into the past and also uh, looking to head into the future, not only for Billy's music, but for the music industry in general. We have two sets of interviews for this episode. The first one is with Mikhail and Billy from the online music project Love Raptor. Uh, you can find them on YouTube. And every week they put out a different cover of uh, mostly classic songs. I say, I guess we could say now classic rock and pop songs. We brought them on because uh, late last year I got clued into them doing two Billy Joel covers. And uh, we thought it would be cool to have yep. them on, not only to talk a little about Billy, but also talk about where they sit in the music industry today. You know, if you go on YouTube, you'll find a lot of these bands doing covers like this and really carving out an identity for themselves and recasting these songs in new lights for a new generation. It's a nice way to look to the past with the covers they're doing and also to the future. And what they're doing with these songs is that they're really exposing a new audience to these great artists. And once again, we're turning to Brad Shaw Lee, engineer with Phil Ramone. Brad told us a, a lot about his work with Phil and a little bit about his experiences with Billy last time. And uh, we had so much fun that we invited him back to have a second conversation. And this one focuses a lot more on his work with Billy in particular and goes past his time with Phil as well. Brad has some incredible stories and each one led into something even more interesting. Jack and I learned a ton. I know you all are going to get a kick out of this conversation. But before we get to those, we have sort of a New Year's resolution. At the end of every episode, we always ask for 
feedback, what you thought of the topic. You know, we ask you guys, go ahead, comment on our socials, email us, and we read and respond to everything. But we haven't really been able to do that on the podcast yet. And that's... um sort of one of our goals for this year is definitely to involve you guys more. So definitely keep these emails and comments coming. And with that in mind, we got two emails just as we were putting this episode together. So we're just going to pick those two up and start with these. This first one is from Jack Coletti and he writes, Jack and Mike, howdy from Pittsburgh. Big fan of the podcast. Just wanted to send a quick note. Recently discovered the show and I'm catching up. Seven down, a few more to go. My first Billy show was the Nylon Curtain Tour. Played at the famed Civic Arena in Pittsburgh, torn down in 2011. My most recent show was again here in Pittsburgh at PNC Park in 2016. You guys do amazing research and you've given me a lot to think about as I re-listen to the BJ catalog. By the way, great get with Liberty. His book just (laughs) showed up here and I will be reading it this weekend. Great job and keep up the awesome work. All the best, Jack. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Jack. We appreciate it. I like Pittsburgh, man. I've been there a few times. I really dug the vibe of the city. Yeah. They got the bridge with all the locks on it. I remember that. I think we were mm-hmm. in a hotel uh, right yeah. near the, the ballpark that's right there. Yeah. I love being on one side of the city looking up at the, the side with, you know, with all the hills and everything. The incline. And, uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 No, we went, I went to a museum and it wasn't the Andy Warhol Museum. It was another one, but it was really nice. Jen and I went there, uh, gosh, 2013 or so. We did like a uh-huh. long weekend getaway there and we had such a blast. There were so many fun things to do in Pittsburgh. The town, like I said, great vibe. We caught a Pirates game. I think we did catch the Andy Warhol Museum. We uh, did the observatory there. Great town. I would love to go back there. Yeah, Museum of Natural Science, I think it was. That area near was like right on the river, a lot of like outdoor shops and stuff like that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. North Shore? what it's called, but anyway, (laughs) good times. Good times in Pittsburgh. That's awesome, though, man. Seeing them back on the Nylon Curtain Tour and then again a couple years ago. That's a good run of shows. It is. I've often, as I've watched live from Long Island, tried to envision myself getting to see Billy back then. And gosh, what a treat that must have been. Mm Mm-hmm. So thanks, Jack, for writing in. That's that's so awesome. Uh, you know, we're super glad to have you on board. And, you know, we hope you enjoy uh, the rest that you're digging into, hopefully, as we speak. You're only on episode seven. I, I feel like we got better after that. So <laughs> I think so. So we've got another email that came in from Blake Archer. The subject on this one is a newish listener. Blake writes, hey, Michael and Jack, I want to start off by saying that I really enjoy the podcast. I've been listening for a little bit now, and I enjoy listening to it while I'm relaxing. I've been a Billy fan ever since I was a kid when my parents introduced me to him. Now I'm 20 years old and in the workforce, and I have a whole different perspective on his music. My question for you guys is simple. In episode one, you guys talk about your favorite Billy songs, and my Mm -hmm. favorite is The Entertainer. But I hear a lot of Billy fans don't like that song due to its heavy use of the synthesizer. Wanted to know your guys' thoughts on the song and whether or not you guys think it's worth the title I've given to it. Thanks, Blake. All right, Blake. Dude, I love the synthesizers. Uh, I can't remember how much of my ramblings about the Moog actually make it in mm-hmm. or that I cut out, you know, when I'm editing. But uh, the Moog was the first thing that caught me about that song. I remember I heard it on the radio first because I didn't have the Entertainer and I had Greatest Hits Volume 1 and 2 on cassette. And so my mm-hmm. version didn't have the Entertainer. I was like, what the hell is this? What is that sound? I really dig right. that sound. Yeah. So I always liked that one. I love how caustic it is. It definitely sticks out because... It's mm-hmm. probably one of the only times he really let himself get that snide until it's still rock and roll to me. And then right. even that time it was a little different. But he had a 
different kind of lyrical flow on that one. So it definitely mm-hmm. sounds a lot different from the other things he's done, even the other stuff on that album. But I dig it, and I love the synth on it. Yeah, if you check out, we did an episode a couple of months back about the uh, Street Life Serenade album, and we go a little deeper into the song. I dig this song. I've always liked it. It seems to have aged pretty well as opposed to the, a lot of the other parts of the album. As far as the synthesizer goes, a lot of what you'll find between the mid-70s and mid-80s was as Billy's discovering new electronic keyboards, he's getting <laughs> really into them for a couple of years. And so you'll find a couple of records that are really heavy on that instrument. So you've got Street Life Serenade. There's a lot of Moog all over it. And then when you've got Turnstiles, The Stranger, he's using a lot more of the Fender Rhodes. By 1980, he's discovered the Yamaha CP80. And that's all over Glass Houses. I do believe, though, speaking of the Moog, I'm pretty sure that's what he uses on All You Want to Do is Dance. It doesn't have as much of a Moog sound, but I'm almost positive. That's what he gets for that sort of steel drum sound. Yeah. We'll have to look into that a little more when we get to Turnstiles. But it's clearly on Angry Young Man. And it's also, I didn't know this for a long time, uh, on Songs in the Attic, the beginning in Miami 2017, the siren sound is the Moog as well. So that's a great question. And we back you up on that one. The Entertainer's a great song. Love his experimentation with the Moog and... Uh, you know, that's the beauty of Billy's songs. You know, there's a flavor for everyone. While it may not be my number one song, it's a great song and it drew you in. Well, Jack and Blake, thank you guys so much for writing in. We love hearing from you guys. And now that we're a little more on the stick about it, we're going to try to get some more of your voices here on the podcast. Yeah. And speaking of more voices on the podcast, uh, we got a couple great interviews for you. Absolutely. So here is Mikhail and Billy from Love Raptor. We're on the line with bass player and producer Mikhail Pivaveros and guitarist Billy Ruger from Love Raptor. They're a loose collective of musicians that perform funk-inspired covers of popular songs. You can find them on YouTube where they've published a new song each week for the past few years. Each video features a different combination of players and their catalog runs the gamut from Sam Cooke and Carole King to Katy Perry and Lizzo. We're talking with them today in particular about their reworkings of two Billy Joel songs. She's got away and moving out. Guys, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, man. It's uh, really awesome to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So tell us about how Love Raptor got started. I am a music producer and Mm -hmm. musician and all sorts of things. You know, I've been doing this for like 15 years. Most of my work has been working on other people's music, producing or engineering or mixing or, you know, basically working within somebody else's framework or somebody else's proclivities. And I kind of got to a point a few years ago where I was like, man, I forgot what I sound like. I forgot what it's like to just do stuff without any restrictions. And I kind of figured a lot of the folks that I was making records with at the time kind of felt the same way. All of these mm-hmm. like session players and cats like that. So it kind of started off as this thing of, uh, you know, reaching out to some of my friends and saying, hey, guys, do you want to like just get together and do something really goofy? Kind of something without any restrictions, something where, you know, everybody's opinions are equally valid and nobody has to kind of ask for permission or make sure you're working within somebody else's framework. You know, we don't have to keep the artists happy. We are. We're all the artists, you know, when we get together. I just started reaching out to cats that I was working on records with. And Billy and I had actually met because kind of we live in the same area. I used to bring clients to this uh, really nice eatery down the street. I would see Billy playing music there all the time, kind of like as the you know featured artist during like the lunch hour or whatever. 
And I was always blown away by his playing, but we had never really gotten together on anything. And when I started this project, Billy was actually one of the first cats I reached out to. And I said, hey, man, you want to come over, do this? He said yes. And, you know, three years later, here we are. You had mentioned that Billy's has been in uh, most of the videos. Do you have any other members that are mostly core members or is it really rotating cast after that? I'm the only person that's in everything. Mm -hmm. Kind of started out as a thing of like, hey, I'm going to really experiment and see what it's like putting a lot of people together. But as we went on and did this a lot, you know, there are certain people that I just, you know, absolutely love and gel with musically and really lean on. Bill, you're probably one in like like 80%, 90% of the videos. That sounds about right. Yeah. Also helps I live down the street, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> Like New York to yeah. Billy is like ten minutes away. It's it's great. Yeah. There's an there's another cat, Sam Oliver. He's a drummer in the mm -hmm. uh She's Got Away, and he's on hand percussion on Moving Out. Sam mm -hmm. is probably the most featured drummer in Love Raptor. He's probably in about half the videos. He's incredible. Okay. Another drummer that uh is with us quite a lot is uh Micah Cower. Brooklyn, New York people might recognize him as the drummer for Sammy Ray and the Friends sometimes. Tommy Weeks is on horn. He's in She's Got Away. Greg Matson mm -hmm. is with us on guitar a decent amount. There's a pretty big rotating cast, but you know, there's like five or six cats that are more common than others. Tell me about the uh, the process for choosing songs. Honestly, there isn't one. You know, I have this like running list on my phone where I'll listen to a song. I'll go, oh man, wouldn't it be really cool to cover that? There's There's next to no prep work. Actually, I would say there is no prep work for any of this. The idea mm -hmm. behind all of this is freedom and improvisation and conversation live in the moments. With a mm -hmm. few core ex key exceptions, mostly because of the pandemic, we didn't we haven't prearranged anything. Yeah, really? yeah, nothing is prearranged. So like all of the awesome stuff that Billy's playing, all of the great vocal lines, some of the reharmonizations, all of that's happening in the moment. We get together on a day, like I'll kind of call a bunch of people and I'll put together a group. And sometimes like I'll call Billy and I'll be like, hey man, like who haven't we seen in a while? Matt Nakoa, who plays mm -hmm. keys and sang on She's Got Away. He's one of our favorites to jam with. He's an incredibly musical guy. It's really tough to get him to get him in because he's usually <laughs> on the road a lot. So it's like really a, a huge treat when he's coming through town. But yeah, we'll, we'll get together and we'll kind of just like sit around and say, okay, hey guys, what songs do you want to do? I was pretty sure somebody was thinking this out ahead of time. Right. They really sound very cohesive. Yeah, we're never reading. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, we're actually reharmonizing. We'll start listening to the song and then we'll say, okay, cool. Like, we'll listen to maybe like 10 seconds. Usually, Billy will put on his AirPods. He'll figure out like what the song actually is supposed to sound like. We'll play that for about, <laughs> for about a minute and then we'll throw that all out the window and completely start... Right. You know, rewriting and reharmonizing and creating a new arrangement around it. Billy, did we keep any of She's Got Away? Is any of that like close to what the Joel arrangement is? Chordally speaking and stuff, it is. I think that one's one of one of the instances where we were closer to the original recording than some others, right. you know? Mm -hmm. Well, harmonically, like vibe wise, I mean we turned totally yeah. turned it on its head. I mean like yeah, vocally Matt Matt definitely, right. you know, took a lot of liberties, but uh just from like yeah. a basic song structure, that that one's pretty close. Right. So so that does happen yeah. sometimes, but there's no real formula to what we do. It's kind of whatever feels cool. For the most mm -hmm. part, we just try to change the song to make it our own. In the case of uh, She's Got Away, the song's a piano ballad with very minimal arrangement. So the fact that we put a funk groove behind it, we put a band on it like really doing these intricate funky funky grooves that was like the big change sometimes the big change on right. a song mm -hmm. is okay cool the song has a very simple like one four five chord progression let's change it around completely if it's got a complicated chord progression let's make it incredibly simple so it's more like a james brown mm -hmm. thing where you just live on the one just kind mm -hmm. of whatever we're feeling yeah. in the moment and the arrangement sounds like a big a big running theme is just to not overthink it 
Absolutely. And we, and we get lost in the weeds sometimes where yes. we, yeah, we, well, <laughs> we where we, we'll start overthinking it and we all just kind of like look at each other and like usually me or Billy or, or somebody who's been like really driving it for a minute will be like, guys, let's pull back and let's do about 5% of what we're doing. <laughs> let's <laughs> simplify. And that's usually when the stuff gets like really cool and interesting. It's funny you actually mentioned that because, you know, we've talked with some of the folks who worked on Billy's records and it's a very similar thing. Billy is very into the spontaneity. I mean, most of those basic tracks were done live with everyone in the room. The vocals yep. are live, everything. And he's the kind of guy who doesn't want to overdo it until he hates it. You know, as a record producer, I've mostly made records in the last couple of years. I mean, the way that you do them nowadays is, you know, people will kind of track separately or maybe you'll do the rhythm section and then then we'll overdub some guitars and then we'll overdub some vocals. And a part of this, for me personally, was kind of doing an homage, a throwback to the old style of recording, kind of the the 70s, the 60s, when everybody had to be in the same room and you just played the frickin' song. The, yeah. Like, you know, the Motown way of doing things, the the Stax Records way of doing things, and, and, you know, the way that Billy Joel's records were made. It's not to say that the other way, the overdub way, isn't valid. I mean, Les Paul certainly was onto something when he, you know, created oh, yeah. multi-tracking, but... There's a magic that happens when musicians get into a room and really have a conversation. And I find that when you do it the other way, you're just trying to emulate a conversation. And the best you can do is get a simulacrum. But it's 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 never quite the same. Like there's something about that vibe. There's like something when, you know, when we're grooving in a room and when we get into a deep groove, even if it's a simple thing, I mean, that's it's a hell of a feeling. For sure. I don't think you can replace that. You know, that being said, though, like when quarantine happened, we were kind of forced to do things separately. We kind of went to town with, you know, yeah. overdubs and adding more people into the mix. And totally. that was cool because it did open up new possibilities. But I'm definitely looking forward to when we can all be in a room kind of doing that thing again. You know, absolutely. It's uh, most of our recordings are done in a room live. No edits, no cuts, no overdubs, nothing. That's just uh, that's just what happened when we played the song live. And I mean, you'll see you see the videos like it's most of our videos are one shot. That's just it. We just yeah. played the song yeah. and, and that was it. So when you guys are doing it, everybody in the room at once, you know, how long was that session? How how long would you guys be together to get the final product? Uh, we come up with an arrangement in like half an hour, 45 minutes. Um, we yeah. get together, you know, once the mics go hot, um, I think it takes us some songs longer than others, but usually it's under 45 minutes of arranging and about half an hour to an hour of tracking. Sometimes yeah. it goes much faster. Mm -hmm. We've had sessions where we just kept the first take and said, yep, that's it. We got it. Yeah. I'm curious then about moving out because of, you know, of the two songs, especially the singer's energy just seems so much more sort of already, already revved up and going once that one started. I'm wondering if... If that was like maybe a few takes in and, and everybody was a little more warm. So up. that day, uh, Moving Out was the second song we did. The first okay. tune we did, we did a Fleetwood Mac song. But also Sammy Ray, the singer in that, um, she's she's just incredible. I mean, she's uh, she has her own band, Sammy Ray and the Friends, and she's just an outstanding front woman, incredible singer, songwriter. She just has an amazing energy about her that all of the takes... From the minute that I said, okay, cool, camera rolling, she was just on. Maybe this is a tricky question now, knowing that you guys just kind of dive headfirst into it in the moment. But I'm curious if, as you get into these songs, if you uncover any qualities about them for yourselves that, that sort of surprise you or that you really find that you enjoy once you, once you get into the, you know, the melody or the, the chord choices and things like that. We've taken some songs that I would never consider playing on my own. I mean, like, I'll do, like, I'll do solo cover gigs, so I play a lot of covers, but we'll take ones that are just totally not my wheelhouse, 
but we kind of make them our own and have a lot of fun with them. So yeah, I would say that kind of in the process, mm-hmm. it gives, I, I've gotten a new appreciation for certain songs that I didn't know so well, but if you learn a song, you play it and you make a memory around the song with other people, this song has a new association for you. It, it's almost beyond just the, the the musical components. You know, it's, uh, you just, you learn to, to enjoy it better because it becomes personal at that point. Breaking down a song that is deceptively simple mm-hmm. or that you think is simple upon like first hearing it, you know, the way that we work on some of the more complicated stuff, like some of the Billy Joel and some of the like Elton John, for example, it's funny because it, the, the session will usually start with once we've picked the song, we start doodling around on it for a second. Billy will put in his AirPods and he'll just kind of like sit there in this meditative transfer moment. And he's like listening and figuring out the chord structure by ear. And then he'll kind of go, okay, Mm. so this is what they're doing. And there's always this like moment of, oh, wow, that's like way cooler and way more complicated than I've ever given that song credit for. Backing up a little, I know you mentioned you kind of picked the songs off the cuff. Do you remember what inspired these two songs, Moving Out and She's Got Away? She's Got Away, that, that was Matt saying, let's do a Billy Joel song, right? That was definitely Matt saying, hey, why don't we give this one a shot? That's Matt Nakoa, the uh, keyboard player and singer in that particular video. That was just him mm-hmm. saying like, yeah, man, I love this song. Nobody covers it. Let's go. A similar thing with Moving Out. That was Sammy Ray saying, man, I really love this song. Let's give it a whirl and see what happens. Sometimes it's me, you know, saying, hey, I really want to try this song. Let's see what happens. But really, most of the time, it's whatever the singer is really feeling that day and whatever they're most excited about. Because ultimately, what we do as a backing band, what we do as the, you know, rhythm section, we can slot into almost anything, but the lyrics the melody, the emotion of the song is going to come from the singer and they have to really dig the song and really want to do it and really be into it. So it's usually we're doing a song that the singer is, you know, really enjoying or knows really well. Leading up to the 70s, when singer-songwriters like James Taylor and Billy Joel were coming to the forefront as composing the, the music that they sang, you know, before that, it was people like Carole King writing these songs for other people. And of course, you know, even before that, it was the Great American Songbook where you had this core of songs that everybody did. And for a long time, I think that was out of fashion. The singer was pretty much always connected to the song. I would. Write. That was the big thing that started happening in the 60s and 70s of, hey, I wrote this song and I'm going to sing it. But the reality is that in the background of all of that, that songwriter position and the songwriter composing for other people, that was always happening. I mean, it's still happening. Mm -hmm. Most pop music happens that way. I mean, you take a look at writing credits on literally any top 40s pop record. It's very rare that the, Mm -hmm. I mean, the songwriter will usually have a credit on it, but a lot of the times that's actually a business arrangement. They didn't necessarily uh, do any of the composing. And then there there are guys like, you know, for example, Charlie Puth, who writes and sings all of his own stuff. It's not so so much that it's gone in and out of fashion. I think it's always been happening. It's just kind of goes in and out of vogue. Like it depends on what, you know, is the singer songwriter the more popular thing right now or is the singer who has a songwriter behind them the more popular thing right now. To that point of that idea of the singer songwriter and, and singers with songwriters going in and out of vogue, that this sort of new crop of video based bands or I guess YouTube based bands like you guys or Postmodern Jukebox, I think was the first one that I became aware of. Yeah. Scary Pockets is another. We didn't really see that for a while where you might find five different covers of a Billy Joel song or an Elton John song. Yeah, I mean that, like that that's really huge right now. Okay, so history lesson for a second. Let's just go back about 30 years. Before the advent of home recording technology, 
there were gatekeepers to the music industry. Even to get into the studio, it was so prohibitively expensive to go into a recording studio and record your song that you basically needed to have a record contract. And the way that you got a record contract was somebody, you either know somebody or somebody hears you that says, okay, great, you're awesome. Let's pursue this and let's build this out and let's see what happens. Now, basically... For a thousand bucks, anybody can get a basic computer, a microphone, and a recording interface, and some software. <laughs> Everybody is putting things out. And because of that, there's such a massive amount of new material out there, which it's a beautiful thing because it means that you can absolutely get your song out there. That if you have a mm -hmm. voice and if you have a story to tell, you can get it out there. The flip side of that is that so can literally everybody else. So you mm -hmm. tend to get lost in this sea of voices. One of the ways that we try to stand out actually is by kind of pulling on your heartstrings a little bit. You play something that's familiar, a cover song that, you know, people will love, mm -hmm. but then you put your own spin on it and you say like, well, you're hearing my voice because you're hearing what I, in this case, this group of musicians, you, you hear what we how we would interpret that song and our interpretation becomes the hook. You know, once mm. they get through the door of here's this familiar song that you already know, like here's this Billy Joel song that you love. The name of the song is going to be the reason that they click, but the right. sound of the band is going to be the reason that they mm. stick around. And that's really the record industry has always done that. I mean, you know, all the way back to Sinatra singing American standards. I mean, that's we're just basically singing the modern American songbook. What have you thought of the reception to Love Raptor? It sounds like sort of a conscious thing. I'm sure you knew what was what was working, what was trending in the industry at the time. But at the same time, it seems like it was also, you know, a good combination of what you wanted to do in terms of mm -hmm. getting together and just, you know, feeling your way through classic songs and, and putting your own spin on them or the project. So, our, our friend Micah said something really interesting to me, I think. Billy, I think was it, it was at the last, it was at the Sam Bear session when he said that, man, you know, like Love Raptor is a music scene. It's a community. You know, yeah, he, yeah, and I, and when he, yeah, yeah, when he called it a scene, I was like, oh wow, that's awesome. I never thought of it that way, but you know, there's something like 60 musicians that have been a part of this project, and what's been really cool to me is to see how collaborations kind of happen out of that. So sometimes, you know, we'll have like two people on a session, and then a month later, I'll find out that oh, and then that guy went and played on her record that she was making in the oh, studio because cool. she like really loved playing with, you know, like really cool stuff yeah. like that will happen. As far as like a reception, I will be honest, I did not care one lick about what people were going to think when I started making the calls. It's really awesome when people like dig it. And I love when you guys reached out and said, hey, we really dug your stuff. Can, can we talk about it? Like, that's all amazing. It's not why we do this. I mean, we do this because it's fun. We, I mean, I do it because I feel like I need to. I, I need yeah. to like have that mm -hmm. moment of just unabashed fun that there's no pressure. Those moments mm -hmm. of in that song, like me, Sam, Billy, Tommy, just like vibing off of each other's energies. Like that's why we're doing it. And I find that when you're being genuine and honest about your intentions and just really doing something where you're having fun, you know, the people will pay attention. My friends and my family and everyone in my, <laughs> my social media network, they're very excited about it for sure. Yeah. They're always sharing it. Like the second we started doing it. I was going to be like, Billy's mom loves us. <laughs> my, dude, awesome. my, my grandma calls it the Raptors. She says, oh, Bill, like I saw that Raptors video you did. I just love it. But it's been great. Like even around town, I've had a few instances where I went to play a solo gig and someone didn't know. It was like, hey, are you the guitarist and love Raptor? I was like, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> we had, yeah, so we, yeah. we had a very funny situation like that happen recently with Seth Gleer, uh, who at, at the time of this podcast releasing um, will probably be one of the last videos that we had just put out. 
he apparently did this huge Zoom concert thing for for some charity. And at the end, mm-hmm. they they kind of did a meet and greet with the artist. And one of the people in the meet and greet kind of like very sheepishly approached him and said, "Are you the Seth Glear that plays with Love Raptor?" And like, and he was telling us sorry. Like, it just it made my my like year <laughs> to, to hear That's that because <laughs> Seth has an incredible following in his own right. So the fact that like somebody would find oh, him yeah. through us, I was just like that. Wow. <laughs> That's that's incredible. The episode that uh, came out in December, uh, we talked all about Phil Ramone, who was Billy's producer, you know, from 77 through uh, 86. So I I, I got to work with him, actually, but continue. You worked with Phil? Yes, I worked with Phil Ramone. Really? I got to hear that story. Uh, Oh, yeah, go on. uh, (laughs) Okay. uh, So like I mentioned before, I'm a music producer, sound engineer, mixer. I do all of this stuff. Back when I was first getting my start, like 12 years ago, um, I was working at Carriage House Studios in Stanford, Connecticut, and uh, this really incredible singer-songwriter, uh, Rachel Sage, was doing a record, and Phil Ramone was producing two songs. Uh, I was the house engineer, the kind of assistant engineer on that session, and he was leading the ship. Yeah, he was just incredible, man. He's a force of nature. At the, you know, at this point, this was like very late in his career of like, you know, oh my sure. God, it's Phil Ramone coming into the mm-hmm. studio. You know, this he just piloted the ship, man. He, he just ran the freaking show with with gusto and with a lot of i don't know how it was the best way to put it uh very very forceful direction like he he knew what he wanted mm-hmm. he went in and he was just like yeah you're gonna do it do it this way and it's gonna be a hit yeah and one thing i'll never forget mm-hmm. i was i i stepped out for a little while and the engineer on the session he you know we're all younger guys i mean he was a few years older than me but we're still like you know we're this younger generation of cats i remember just like i was in the back of the room kind of working on the tape machine and um they're listening to playback and phil and and the engineer like he kind of takes his he- hands off the board and he's just kind of sitting there at the speakers listening to things and phil just kind of like looks at him and he kind of smacks his shoulder and he says never take your hands off of the faders <laughs> and i was just like i was looking at him like oh. and he was like he was like very serious it wasn't like a joking he was just like like never take your hands off of the faders wow uh, like, like like you should wow. always be trying to make the mix better even if it's a rough mix just like do your job be on it so it was, it was yeah. just it was really it was amazing being around somebody who like had that kind of work ethic and just demanded that sort of competence and perfection out of people. And it, it, you know, working with him and a couple of other, you know, incredible guys like that, it was one of the things that kind of instilled the work ethic that I feel like I have in me. And, you know, I'm not necessarily as, as strict or as stringent as he is, but uh, that was, sure. that was one of those moments where I was like, Oh yeah, you really have to have your shit together to be in this industry. <laughs> you know, I've heard so many stories over the air about the Billy sessions he did and, there were times like, you know, the song My Life, Liberty DeVito, the drummer, h- hates it. He's like, yeah, when we were starting to work on it in the studio, he's like, I don't want to play this disco bullshit. And Phil Ramones, he's like, you're going to sit there and play what I tell you to play. You've been in this business, what, 10 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, and he's like, and now I look and I have a My Life gold record on the wall. So I guess <laughs> he knows. Probably Wait. my favorite Billy Joel song. My real life, real right? quick, what was Phil the producer for The Stranger, the album The Stranger? That was the first okay, yeah. one. He did The Stranger all the way through the bridge, so 77 to 86. Okay, yeah. If you said 77, I thought that was when The Stranger came out. That's that's one of my favorite albums of all time. And he, he was the first producer who wanted to use Billy's Road Band, and that's what sealed the deal. Mm. Yeah. Like George Martin was going to do that album, but he wanted all no session guys, and Billy's like, nope. Wow. Sorry. See, I would I would have loved to hear a uh, I would have loved to hear that record produced by George Martin. It would have been very very different. Well, Mikhail, Billy, thanks a lot for talking with us. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find your work? 
youtube.com slash loveraptor, facebook.com slash loveraptorfunk. I always like to direct people to our Patreon, patreon.com slash loveraptor. Throw us a couple of bucks, keep us open, and you know, you'll get MP3 downloads of everything we do. Just search Billy Ruger. You'll find me Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Billy, uh, last name spelled R-U-E-G-G-E-R. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks for listening and thanks for having us on, you guys. Uh, it's always an honor to you know talk to somebody who digs what we do. That was another fun conversation, man, almost from a selfish point of view, just to like pick their brains about how they're putting these videos together, you know? Yeah, their approach is really interesting and not too dissimilar with the vibe that Billy and the band has in the studio. It's all about the song and the feel. And these guys capture the spirit of these great songs while putting their own stamp on it. You know, it was a happy accident that Mikhail worked with Phil Ramone. We had no idea until pretty much the end of the conversation where Michael said something offhand and that sparked Mm -hmm. him mentioning it. We were like, all right, well, story time now. So here we are talking about the newer generation of musicians digging into the great American modern songbook, so to speak. And here we have the uh, principal member you know, is an engineer and a producer who worked on a session with Phil Ramone. <laughs> yeah. And here we are talking again with Brad Lee, who was mm-hmm. in the studio with Phil on all these great records. In the last episode, Brad talked mostly about working with Phil Ramone in particular. And, you know, and he started telling us a few other things. And so we decided to have another conversation with him. And let me tell you, man, he was off to the races this time. His stories are so great. And just to hear his insights on all of this was so fascinating. All those records that he worked on and, you know, the trip to Russia, coming back around with River of Dreams. Yeah. So let's hear from Brad now. Brad, when you were last on, you know, you talk about how you were actually there at the Carnegie Hall show that Phil saw, which happened a little before The Stranger, and that was a big part of Phil and Billy getting together in the studio. And then the first Billy record you worked on was 52nd Street, right? I mean, it's a fantastic memory. I was there for 52nd Street. I was outside the room, which, by the way, first of all, 52nd Street is my favorite Billy Joel record by a Mm lot. I love that album. Right behind the control room was a room that was the tape duplicating room. So the assistant would like during the session run out and like make cassette copies for Billy to take home. So I'm hearing this stuff. I'm hearing that record hard up the press. And by the way, there's not that much overdubbing on that record. That record is pretty much how it was cut live. There's some tasty things at it. But for me, being in the studio and like standing just outside the room and hearing that was just phenomenally exciting. (laughs) I was only brought in to fix broken shit, but I was not actually part of the record. So the first one that being Glass House is... Yeah, glass houses. From what we can tell, this record was different in the in the sense that it was the first time it was just Billy's core band in the studio. Right. 
every record has its own vibe. Was the process different in the studio for every record? Was the vibe different in the studio for every record? Or was that more just the output? I'm guessing that The Stranger, 52nd Street, and Glass Houses were relatively the same process. They were cut in the mm-hmm. same room, same engineer, same producer, a little bit of a mix-up in the band. You know, I know that when I set up Glass Houses, I was there for 52nd Street. I set up the same arrangement that was done for 52nd Street. I think it started to diverge, especially a little bit when Phil had a falling out with the other owners of A&R. And so at a certain okay. point, we left A&R and started, and that was our home, and started working at other studios. Also, technology was advancing, so some of the setup would get a little bit more complicated and things expanded and different sounds. But when you throw Lib and Doug and Russell and David Brown and Billy in a room, that's 80%, 90% of your experience. <laughs> One example is... My memory is, and I could be wrong about this, that on uh, Glass Houses, the majority of the vocals are live. And by this is one thing I would really like to address about Billy's process, which was like the most amazing thing about working with him for me. Billy would come in with ideas and there would be a verse and a chorus. And, you know, all for Lena, he would he would sing melodies nah, 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 and he would sing BS lyrics. So uh-huh. like. All for Lena was funny papers. There are other titles that I can't tell you. But so he would have all these different ideas. And then he would come in another day and he would have glued all those ideas together into like maybe grab this course, that verse or whatever. And it, and it became kind of a song. So we mm-hmm. we track that song. Then he'd go home and he would really like nail the structure. And he'd come in. All right. Now we've got the song with the band. He'd sing it with his bullshit lyrics, which were now, he had the melody for the entire song, maybe not all the words, and they would record the song. Great, we got the song recorded. Here's what's freaking amazing. He would go home, write the lyrics, the band would recut it. Meaning Lib wanted to play to the lyrics. We had the song recorded, it was done. And what was great about that was we would, then when he got the final lyrics, and so you could feel it when you're in the room, you could just like feel like that was a great take. And then even one thing that would go down a little bit further, all right, so that song's finished now, right? Now they're working on another mm-hmm. song that they don't like. And they're just <laughs> hacking through it and it's not freaking working. And, you know, we take our Chinese dinner break and, and then they would go into that song that they had cut before and then that would become the take. So they're wow. like real live performances more so than recording sessions. Yeah, you're capturing the performances rather than piecing together an album, so to speak. It's more about capturing the moment. And I don't know when it started to change, but I can tell you that most of my knowledge, memory of Billy in the studio is live vocals. It's just nobody Mm -hmm. does that. I know on 52nd Street, I'm pretty sure on The Stranger, and I know on Glass Houses, the majority of the lead vocals are live. That really shapes the sound of these recordings, too, because, I mean... Try as you might, you're still going to get some bleed between the piano microphones, Billy's vocal mic and the drum mic, because you're all in a room together. That's going to inform how these records ultimately sound and helps make them sound more live in that way. Yeah. And that's one of the things I did try to push for on uh, River of Dreams was he was in this big bombastic boathouse and he had a large PA, which he used to rehearse and write. And then we turned the PA off when we were tracked. And I was like, Billy, you got to record with the PA. Like him singing in the room with the PA blasting just sounded for not any. Yeah. He wasn't up for it. He just wasn't (laughs) up for it. One thing that always 
was fascinating to me with songs in the attic, how you were all able to make that sound so cohesive being recorded in so many different settings, you know, different, whether it be a sound check, small club, big arena. I mean, but you're able to still tie it all together and make it one cohesive recording. You know, a lot of that goes to Jim Boyer and, um, you know, Elliot Shiner, but a lot of that gluing together was done in post. Like a lot of the ambience and audience is glued together. And the thing was, we had reels and reels of stuff that we collected, but like, you know, Phil wanted everything to be authentic. And if you go to a video post house, they have applause, they have this, and I'm trying to think of what live recording we were working on where the post house just wanted to murder me because we were stitching together. It was, it was either out in Long Island or one of those, maybe Russia. Oh, it was Russia. And we were gluing it all together for the ABC and the HBO special. And I insisted on using audience from that show. Like they had reels of audience that was clean, that didn't have somebody screaming whipping post on it you know what i mean so (laughs) they're just like well let's put audience in here so you know we lifted audience from those shows and i think the audience and the reverbs that were used and the vocal effects helped glue a lot like if you were to listen to the just the drive mics you get a lot more of a contrast and hear those different venues I love that record. Songs in the Attic. When he said I have to do a live album, do you remember if the idea the whole time was to recast these old songs or was there just an idea to to do a live album and this idea came along later? To be totally frank with Phil, he had a very tight personal relationship with the artist and the label. So there Mm -hmm. were things that were not discussed in front of him. So I would get a call. Hey, man, go to the studio. By the way, when we recorded Glass Houses, it wasn't booked as Billy Joel. It was booked as another name. Billy, Billy and Phil used to do that, that they didn't want the record label sniffing around. <laughs> so they would book studio time under an alias. So, uh-huh. you know, I don't know, but there are there's one thing I do know and one thing I have a question about that's just my question. I have no facts to back it up. One is he wanted the stuff cut rejuvenated with a new band. The other thing is... They're great songs, and they, to some degree, were overlooked. And now that he was famous, it was then representing it to them. And I'm really mm-hmm. curious how this falls into the whole Artie Rip issue. Oh. Do you know what? Nobody, I never heard anybody say anything, but I wonder yeah. if he recut those old songs and then people were buying songs in the attic instead of Piano Man. Was that bypassing Artie's deal? I don't know. Because he had mm-hmm. signed a bad contract yeah. early in his career. But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, there's no facts that I have to back that up. Well, what That's was fascinating theory, too is just two years later, 83, Artie struck a deal with Columbia on his own and they reissued Cold Spring Harbor. Like Billy, I know, had nothing to do with it, but he couldn't really fight it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, somebody's going to have to look on that record and see if there's a sheep on the label. I think there is all the way through the bridge. Okay. Because I don't yeah. know when that deal was cut. I want to kind of go back to this because you said something that that kind of piqued my interest. You said how the Glass Houses sessions, and I guess others too, uh, Phil would put them under other names so that uh, you know the record company wouldn't come sniffing around. Even by that point, like with Billy putting out like two blockbuster albums, was there still a concern that somebody from the label is going to come by and try to dictate something or give notes or just freak stuff out? Like, what was the thought process behind that? First of all, you know, the heavy Don DeVito, those guys were heavyweights too. So it wasn't like you could tell them they they couldn't come by. They were respectful and they were friends. I mean, from Mm -hmm. what I could see, Don DeVito and Phil and Billy and all those guys were tight. But I think it was more of a psychological freedom of no pressure. Because the thing was, label was going to pay for it. 
but maybe not initially. So they could go in and play without anybody getting an invoice at that point. Like, mm-hmm. so, oh, you've been in the studio for three weeks. What do you got? <laughs> I don't think that it was necessary, but that was also, you know, one thing about Phil that was also really hard to work with was he was not conservative with studio time. And so what we used mm-hmm. to do, and this this happened during Songs in the Attic, was he eventually went to RPM Studios on 12th Street and just said, what do you want a month? It was a one-room <laughs> studio. What do you want a month? I'll just pay you a month. And then he billed all the record labels. So oh. I think he actually made, made some money on the deal, but he didn't have to worry about destroying his budget because he had bought a month of studio time. So he yeah. wasn't under the clock because the clock wasn't his thing. And also, I mean, when you think about it, what is a Billy Joel record? You know, they, they're so different. If you look at Innocent Man and 52nd mm-hmm. Street and Glass Houses, you know, and then to have the freedom to make that pivot where that's one of the most common things that you'll hear from a label as well. It's not really, you know, I there was one label that told us that Phil produced a Stephanie Mills record and told us it wasn't black enough. <laughs> Do you realize how insulting that was to Stephanie Mills? Oh, I can't imagine. Yeah. My God. You know what, what I mean? So it's yeah. like, well, you know, so just avoiding all that. We were talking recently, too, about the Nylon Curtain and An Innocent Man were released only a year apart. Right. Time frame wise, they were so close together, but couldn't be further apart with how they turned out. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you. I'm not a do up fan. Yeah. You know, I, I grew mm-hmm. up a child of the 60s. And I and so they, when I in the 60s, there was like greasers and there were hippies and they sort of overlapped. Yeah. And so there was a division there. So I was more on the long hair side. I thought Billy was committing career suicide doing an innocent man. When you think about what was before it and then doing like a doo-wop record, I was just like, really? There's n- <laughs> There was nothing suggesting that that would have done well at all. No, and it sure did. Speaking of the Nylon Curtain, I-, I know Billy has said that that was his favorite because of how different his approach was. And, you know, he mentions, you know, using the studio as an instrument and so many different sounds and effects and things never heard before on a record of his and really not since. Do you have any... Uh, Memories of doing that record? I have a lot of memories of all these records, but at that point I was doing other projects. So Phil was juggling projects. So I was spending a little bit more time on those other projects. And Jim was the primary engineer. It was really just a head dive into that genre, you know, into, into that, that feel. And she's right on time. And that's one of my favorite songs. And that's, that's one of the deep tracks. One thing about making records in that period was the technology was constantly shifting. Mm -hmm. So you would get a new keyboard. You would get a new outboard effects device that could do things. So you would plug it in and turn it on and do stuff. I don't know where when it came from. It's not on the record, but there is a synth patch that's got a helicopter. And Mm. I think that may have triggered Billy on Saigon. Because the that. song starts and it's got yeah. that helicopter in it. And I don't know if that triggered his thought pattern or whatever. But yeah. I do remember hearing a helicopter patch on like a Juno or a synthesizer okay. or something like that. So I think a lot of that was using new technology to sort of bend back and do like that sort of Beatles stuff. It's, it is interesting in that way, the fact that it is u- utilizing a lot of the new technology then, but also being a big homage to 
the Beatles? I think probably the simplest statement about that record would be if, if the earlier statement I made that Billy didn't have the patience for the process of making a record, that he was a songwriter and a great piano player, then the band pulled it together, that would apply least to this record. Because it had to be a collaboration between him and Phil and Jim Boyer in order to come up with that sonic landscape. It's not just that, like, you know, we're going to, Billy's going to write Allentown and walk out of the room and somebody's going to put a pile driver on it. Right. Do you know what I mean? There had to yeah. have been an interaction with Phil and Billy going, hey, I want, you know, I want this kind of thing on it. I want something right. industrial. Right. This is most likely the record that he dove his head in the deepest to influence the the sonic character of it. What was your involvement with the Live in Russia album? They had the Manor Mobile truck that Jim Boyer was in, and he was recording all the live concerts at the venues. Mm -hmm. I brought a fly rig, which was in those days, you know, I had a Trident console that weighed about 125 pounds and two 12-track mm -hmm. machines that each weighed about 80 pounds. They attached me with the, the documentary crew. So I traveled with Billy as he traveled through Russia. So like when you go down to Tbilisi, Georgia, and he does that, what was not supposed to be a performance in an opera house, and he yeah. does that performance. <laughs> the Russians were great with that stuff, where they're just going to have a jam session, and you walk into an opera house, and there's a full audience. And it's packed, yeah. <laughs> so I recorded all the uh, off-venue stuff, and then I mixed the HBO special and the... ABC and HBO. I forgot. What yeah, 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 yeah. So I mixed those. I mixed all the music on those two specials and did the recording and the remote stuff. And Jim mixed and produced the album and did all the live recording. Was being in a different country, particularly you know in Russia oh, at that oh, time, did man. that add more? Greatest to trip of my life. I mean, really? I can look. Think back. Nobody was going to Russia then. One. When I get there, I'm listening on Radio Moscow to the comments about Reagan bombing Libya. <laughs> Chernobyl had happened, and Russia was the most fantastic place in the world. As a matter of fact, I went back on five more trips working. I loved it. And wow. it was a love-hate situation because it was like wacko Disneyland. But here's the important <laughs> thing about it. The people had nothing when you got married, you lived with your parents. There's great books about this. They had bootlegging before the internet. A guy would go to a park with a cassette player that he would rewire with eight outputs, and you would bring your cassette player, and you would pay him 25 kopecks and patch in and get the latest Rolling Stone records. They cut vinyl on old x-rays because they didn't have, you know, vinyl stamping for independent records. These people right. would mm -hmm. do stuff like they were into literature. They were, they were passionate. I met a famous woman rock star there that was in a band that would make David Byrne look relatively sane. And <laughs> I didn't know, oh God, I can't think of his name now. Uh, a very like a Bob Dylan type, but I'd never met him. And mm -hmm. he had gone to Russia after me. And like, I get a letter from him. It's because he smuggled out a letter from this Russian rock star that had a crush on me. But so, you know, everything you did, you'd go to the hotel with your whole crew and you'd walk in the room and they'd say, there's no rooms. And then people would go back in a back room and argue and they'd bribe somebody. And then suddenly your rooms would appear. You could only eat at the cafeteria <laughs> when they served meals. So a lot of people hated it. But, you know, I went to a party in Gorky Park, which was a famous book about spying at that time. There was a studio there owned by a guy named Stas Naman, which was the sort of a 
allowed a little bit allowed kids to be rock artists. Yeah. You couldn't be you couldn't be a rock star in Russia. Like you had to work for the government. And so I'm in Gorky Park. I meet this guitar player. I go back and crash at the house and I come out and there's a zoo across the street with a bear and I'm in Moscow and I've got to figure out how to get back to Red Square. I couldn't have been happier. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. they, they did do a thing at one point to appease people, which was uh, at the hotel, they got hard rock to fly burgers in and they got the Marines to cook them. And like mm. the Marines showed up in a Ford pickup truck at the hotel driving like the wrong way down the streets because they were under diplomatic immunity, <laughs> you know? So the people that were really happy to get the hard rock burgers didn't really get the Russian experience, I think would probably explain it. And like Billy says in the documentary, you know, when he first started performing, it was the same thing that happened in Tbilisi with that concert was the tickets were all given to hire older Russians and it really mm -hmm. pissed him off. Yep. So, you know, it's just a very rigid, corrupt political structure. But the people, because they had nothing, had just really huge hearts. I was curious about An Innocent Man. Uh, looking in the liner notes, that certainly has the largest cast of musicians did basic tracks with the band get cut and then were, you know, horns and vocals and all that done without everyone else being there? That seems like that was a bit more of a production based on how many people were playing and singing on that record. You know, one thing that was real different on that record was they had to structure all those background vocals. So therefore, they brought in, I believe it was Tom Baylor, who had done like all the Michael Jackson stuff and worked with Quincy and done all that stuff on the West Coast. So they had to bring in a bunch of singers. It would have been brutal for them to try to recreate those backgrounds without somebody figuring out chord charts and telling singers which notes to sing like that. So right there, you've got a handful of background singers. You've got a background arranger. Phil had his cast of arrangers that he used for horns and strings and horns and string sections that he liked to work with. This is, in a sense, the most pop production because it is recapturing those old records. So you had to stack the backgrounds. You, had, you know, it's like the Phil Spector stuff. You had to stack the strings. You had to stack the horns. So I think that that's probably why mm -hmm. this has the, uh, you know, that, that sort yeah. of fatter, more addition to the core band. When it came to uh, sending these out, so to speak, for background vocals and string arrangements, would they just sort of ship off the arranging and give these kind of tapes that the core band made and say, can you put some strings on this and it would kind of come back ready? Or was there a lot of collaboration on those? First of all, some of this is before MIDI. I mean, these days and other stuff that I've done later, like when I when I did a Carly Simon score with uh, Rob Mounsey, he was able to mock up the full orchestra and a computer and you knew what you were getting. Mm -hmm. Back then, Phil would have a meeting. He would choose the arranger based on the style that he wanted. Then he would mm -hmm. sit down and he would have a meeting with him and explain what he wanted, give him the tape. To my knowledge, there's a really good chance that arranger showed up with that chart that day and it was changed on the fly if it was changed. Now, Phil may have seen the chart. I sort of doubt it because uh, in those days you didn't have computers to print. And matter of fact, they continued doing this because people like it anyway, but you used a copyist. So the arranger would write the arrangement, send it to a copyist who would hand write out the night before yeah. the sheet music for the 20, 30 musicians for each right. part. The arrangers, the players, everybody was good enough where they would run through a pass and do it and they could come in and talk about it and make changes on the fly. Mm -hmm. I think probably the background vocals with Tom Baylor, I think those were probably worked out on the fly in the studio. I remember spending a lot of hours stacking those backgrounds on that record. Uh, and when you say stack the background vocals, just a small group of singers actually just overdubbing on themselves. It wasn't yeah. like a... 
again, this is from memory. Is Eric Troyer, Rory Dodd, and I think a third singer. They, mm -hmm. they would double and triple it and sing different parts and split parts differently amongst them. Yeah, I was in on some of those sessions. It was it was a lot. And but see, for an engineer, that's hard work because, like I said, you're recording three, you're mixing them, you're recording three, you're mixing them, you're recording three. You got to keep track of all of them. You got to get the balances right. That's the more work side. You know, the joy side of being a recording engineer is tracking a live band and mixing the song. The stuff yeah. in between can be a little fatiguing at times. After the bridge, there was a break. Billy went a different direction on Stormfront, working with Mick Jones, and came back around to giving you a call in the early stages of River of Dreams. How did that come about to where you kind of came back into the fold there? Was it just a phone call one day? Yeah, I got a call from Bill Zampino, who at the time was sort of overseeing the making of this record. Billy had this dream of doing like this raw garage band record out on the island. And he r rented this boathouse that was right on the water that had a dock. It was like a big barn. And they put up a wall and built a control room. And they had rented a console and some other equipment. You know, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but Jay Healy was engineering it. Jay Healy had done the, the prior album, the Mick Jones record. Storefront, yeah. And the situation was kind of a little bit out of control. I don't know how it came to be. My understanding was Jay just didn't think the situation was workable. He wasn't happy working in that boathouse with that equipment, et cetera. So I got a call saying, hey, man, they asked me to come out, take a look. They said, do you think it can make it work? I did some technical changes first. I twisted the control arm around, so hopefully it sounded better and rearranged some stuff. You know, I was totally happy working at the end. Like I said, I think we cut seven or nine tracks, most of which Korchmauer's version wound up on the record. But he originally mm -hmm. was going to only, they wanted a single. So he came in to cut like three tracks. And then once he worked with a new band, and, and I was like, dude, you know, I'm working with this band in a boathouse with this old equipment. You're choosing, you know, first call studio guys in the hit factory. You know, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Like, give me right. a break. We hear things like, oh, we just drove a truck up for Songs in the Attic and, and you know, we recorded live. And, oh, Billy just built a studio out in a boathouse. What goes into an artist wants to record in a non-traditional setting? Well, in that case, we sort of went with what it was. It was a big space and it was a big control room. I tried to mm -hmm. do some acoustic treatment to make it work. What Billy had done that made that situation a little bit more doable was there was a guy that worked on his PA crew mm -hmm. that was trying to start a PA company. So he had a console. He had patch bays and a bunch of old outboard equipment that was all meant to be broken down and, and road carried. But at that point, you had three options. You could either do like you 2 did, you know, in one of their early records, which is what I did on the Russian record when I was traveling, which is you rent a bunch of gear and road cases and plug it all together in a room and hope mm -hmm. for the best. Or you rent a remote truck, which was done on like Billy Live at Long Island and Live at the Garden and Shea Stadium. And oddly enough, mixing songs in the attic was actually done at Phil's house in a remote truck eventually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. So you so were involved with Live from Long Island as well? was out there. Again, I, I may have been just helping Jim out. Jim recorded it. The only thing I remember about that, they lay wood over the ice for the chairs and the stage. And there was a hockey game the next day and they had a, uh, a Luma crane for the camera and it leaked yeah. hydraulic fluid that seeped down under the wood onto the ice and it screwed the ice for the Islanders. No kidding. It caused no a big problem. Right. Just a little more on the Shelter Island sessions. What was that like being in, in a non-traditional space with Billy? 
Did you feel like he fed off the vibe? Did the band feed off the vibe? Yeah. When you ask about the non-traditional, do you mean out of the boathouse or do you mean touring in Russia with that remote setup? We'll start with the boathouse. What was that like for the band? That was also an interesting band too. Because that's the first time I had worked with Skylar Deal on bass and Tommy Burns on guitar. And Crystal mm-hmm. was out there quite a bit too. But the only person I was really connected with was Liberty and Billy because I had never met the others before. I think it was sort of a figuring it out vibe. You know, it was it was a little bit less of the raucous, cohesive band. And again, there wasn't a taskmaster in the room. There wasn't a producer in the room that would have sort of centered the energy. But obviously, Billy created a lot of material. And I think there's some great stuff. He's got a couple songs on that record that remind me that they could have fallen back in The Stranger sort of 52nd Street days. What I was a little bit unaware of was they would bring me out for a few days a week at a time to record, but the band would occasionally go out there and rehearse. And that's why they had the PA. So the band would work and rehearse for three, four days. They'd call me, I'd come out and record a track. I think I was off balance working with Billy and a new band, essentially. It was uh, just sort of feeling my way through it. So on a side note, how about... uh Billy and Liberty finally reconnecting. Oh, it's so great. It's that that was the best news of the year. I don't think people understand the nature of a band relationship. You're like brothers going through this intense experience. You're traveling together. So you're living together for months at a time. You know all each other's dirty secrets. And then at the same time, you're in a business. And the relationship sort of shifts where, you know, your business partners, then one becomes more dominant. And that's why you see so many bands break up. But what they share, these guys are all family to me. And I also think that's why Billy did so well with this band. They're all Long Island guys. You know what I mean? And and Billy's Mm -hmm. not, he's actually almost like a shy guy. So, you know, he was like in his element with his buddies when he was making these records. So this the connection I have, like the flashbacks, thinking of making all these records and being there when they were created. You know, it's it's a family. It's a business. You know, families have divorces, business have breakups, but it's very hard to maintain for a long time. These relationships are intimate. They're personal. When you're in the studio with somebody making music, it's an intimate relationship. And so when it ends, it's like a breakup. You know, it's good to try to contain those feelings when that happens because artists have the choice to go in a different direction. They have a choice to do something different if they decide in that moment they want to do it, but it usually doesn't go over very smoothly, you know, and it's usually not handled very well. It's like getting a breakup with a text. I always thought it was unfortunate that those guys rubbed each other the wrong way at one point and it just seems right. They, they managed yeah. to smooth things out. You know, I, I saw Billy live about a year and a half ago. I ran mm-hmm. into Steve Cohen in the village and he got me passes. And so I went in before the show. Well, I used to hang out at Billy's house when we were making records, but now we're not making a record. So we sat down and talked for like 45 minutes. And it's like, he knew me when I was 19. You know, I'll go, mm-hmm. Billy, man, I've known you for like 30 years. He's like, Brad, it's 40. And I was embarrassed doing it. I asked him for a photograph. Because in those days, to be in that room, you didn't ask for an autograph. No. You didn't ask for a photograph. I have one photograph of me that somebody took over my shoulder with Billy. Aside from that, no photographs exist, even though I worked on like eight albums with him. And I finally asked him for a photograph. 
But it was great for us to, you know, sit down and talk because it reconnects Mm. that thing. Few people will know what it's like to go through that in music. I think Brad has to write a book called Wacko Disneyland, My Time in Russia. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, he went back, what, four or five times, he says? I'd love to hear the rest of those stories. This has been a pretty cool first episode for the year. Here we are looking forward and looking back all in one episode. Brad Lee with some incredible insight into his career with Phil and Billy. And then we have the guys in Love Raptor. Yeah. As usual, let us know what you think. We did things a little different this time around. Um, We've had multiple guests on before, but this is the first time they weren't really connected thematically, although they kind of turned out to be in the end. Hey guys, uh, definitely give uh, Love Raptor a listen. Go over to YouTube, uh, type in Love Raptor. You're going to find a bunch of great covers of so many great artists. These versions are so much fun. But of course, uh, give She's Got A Way moving out a listen. Let us know what you guys think of it. They're very different, but I think they came out really nicely. Yeah, you can reach out to us at glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. We read and respond to every email. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all over the place. Come connect with us. We'd love to uh, chat with you guys. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment and give us a five-star review if you like what we're doing. It's a quick and easy way to support us. Uh, The more five-star reviews we get, the more people that Apple will put us in front of. And so the more people get to enjoy this as well. And we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.